The processed foods make people very volatile. It, it, they increase the amount of adrenaline in your body. They, they wear out the feel-good pathways in your brain. Your glucose is unstable. And um, you can have a very, very unpredictable personality, very unstable emotional life, and never realize that it's, it's coming out of the, the processed foods. Welcome back to the Resilient Longevity Show, and I'm Dr. Robert Lufkin. I'm joined by Dr. Steve Sideroff. Hi there, Rob. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure to um, be part of this podcast. So not long ago, tobacco and tobacco addiction was one of the leading causes of death. As we've begun doing better in conquering that, a whole other category of addictions are at the source of some of our greatest problem, health problems, uh, leading to the speeding up of aging and a number of chronic illnesses. And today we have one of the experts that will talk with us about this, uh, Dr. Um, Joan Island is uh, here, and we're very happy that she's here. She's the author of a best-selling book, Processed Food Addictions, Foundations, Assessments, and Recovery. And Joan, it's a pleasure to have you here. I am so happy to be here. Thank you all for inviting me. Yeah, yeah this, I appreciate you. This is going to be so uh, much fun, uh, Joan. Uh, full disclosure, um, I'm, I'm personally a recovering junk food addict, so <laughs> maybe... Before we dive into all the work you're doing, maybe you could start off and just tell us a little background on how you came to be interested in this area. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I grew up in an addicted household, and of course, we didn't know it, um, but processed foods make people very volatile. It, it, they increase the amount of adrenaline in your body. They, they wear out the feel-good pathways in your brain. Your glucose is unstable. And um, you can have a very, very unpredictable personality, very unstable emotional life, and never realize that it's it's coming out of the the processed foods. So that was the household that I grew up in, people being very emotionally unstable, uh, occasionally violent. Mm -hmm. And I was determined I was not going to raise my children that way. So when they were born, I did what I was what was available. I had a rage problem. I just break out into raging and I would be watching myself rage and wishing it would stop. And uh, so I did years and years of personal therapy. I got I understood all my childhood issues didn't stop the raging. I joined a women's healing group. I did all of their trainings and I became a leader in the group. Didn't stop the raging. I joined Codependence Anonymous and there in that group, another member heard the sugar driving my raging. So she suggested I join another 12-step group, Food Addicts in Recovery. I was also yo-yo dieting, and I couldn't understand why she was suggesting this because I was kind of at a thin phase. But sure enough, by the end of the year, I'd regained the weight, so I went and got the food plan. I uh, started following the food plan January 1st, 1996. And I said, there's no way I can lose weight on this. It's got too much food on it. I'm like, I'm not hungry. I'm not irritable. This could never work. Well, on day four, uh, my craving stopped. I didn't know that was possible. 
I'd had cravings from my earliest memory. And um, the bloating stopped and the brain fog stopped and the fatigue stopped. And at the end of the week, I lost two pounds. And the next week, the allergies went down and the the lifelong sinus infection cleared up. But the, how I got into this field was in the third week. It was January 18th, 1996. And I'm standing in my kitchen. And I think, wow, my family's been so good for like the last three weeks or so. I haven't had to yell at anybody. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was not about my family's great behavior. It was about the food. And this was before the internet. So I had to wait until Saturday. I did go to the support meetings and wait until I had an opportunity to ask, does every, does, do people get less irritable on this food plan? 20 heads. Yep. I just was shocked. Nobody ever mentioned it. Not all the sinus surgeries, not, not, nobody ever, migraine, no, nobody ever mentioned anything about food. So in that moment, I took this on as my mission to let the world know what processed foods do to people. They're, they're killing people. Yeah. Well, I guess bef before we move on, let, let me ask you, um, just definitions, uh, junk food, uh, that sounds bad. Processed food, that sounds maybe a little more benign. Are processed food and junk foods the same? What makes what makes a processed food? What makes a junk food? And and let's start with that. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that question. There's this definition floating around called ultra processed foods, which is so not helpful. Because anytime you take a plant and you grind it into a powder and you take out the fiber or you make it into a syrup or you, you know, you extract an element of it, what's going on is plants have natural, edible plants have natural endorphins in them. It's wonderful mother nature didn't just say, oh, eat so you don't die. You just said eat and you'll have some pleasure and you won't die. So they have natural endorphins in them. And this is, this is pretty well established. So when you concentrate those natural endorphins, you're taking that plant and creating a drug. There's enough concentration of endorphins to create that dopamine, serotonin, opioid, cannabinoid high. And now you have an addiction if you use it. It's just the same way, you know, you could eat, I suppose you could eat a poppy plant. Don't do it. Don't do it at home. Um, but it's when you concentrate that poppy plant into uh, opium that you have a problem. Mm -hmm. It's the same process of uh, concentrating. Like if you were to chew on sugar, uh, sugar cane, it probably would be really hard to be addicted to that. But when you extract in a, in a process very similar to the creation of cocaine, when you extract the sugar and you create a crystal out of that sugar cane, you've created a drug. So it, it's the, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so 
this is, I think this is going to surprise your audience. That definition of ultra-processed foods does not include flour. The, the person who created that system, now it's used all over the world and it's used in research. It's about, because uh, I've gone into the detail and I've said, okay, well, if you move this into that, it's, um, it, it, Americans are eating 73% of their food in processed foods. Mm. And then that category of minimally processed, oh, that's just as addictive as the, I mean, I know the ultra-processed has more bad stuff in it, food additives and combinations of fat and sugar. And yes, you could probably make an argument that it's worse. But you can't say, oh, I'm going to avoid ultra-processed foods and I'm only going to eat minimally processed foods and get healthy. No, no. That's like, that's the whole ploy of, you know, cigarettes going to low-tar cigarettes. And that actually is the deception that finally got the tobacco companies to yield is these deceptive advertising around the low tar cigarettes, which were more cancerous because you had to inhale the smoke more deeply, hold it longer to extract the nicotine. Mm. So people, it was actually making people sicker. So don't think that there's that you can get off the ultra processed foods and just switch over to minimally processed foods and get healthy that will not happen so so this addiction it's something about the processing and concentration for, for example uh an egg with a shell on it is not going to be addictive because it hasn't been processed at all right is is that right so right we to eat non-processed foods and and junk foods we would eat things that are uh freshly picked and in the yeah yeah harvested um, then you know a good uh analogy is oat flour versus oat groats so if you've ever tried to chew the kernel of an oat groat Oh my God, you're there all day. You know, you're just chewing and chewing and chewing. And that carbohydrate and the endorphin with it is going to get into your system very slowly. But if you were to eat a, a slice of bread made with oat flour, that carbohydrate, you'll get a glucose high. So it destabilizes glucose and you will get a, um, a serotonin high. Mm -hmm. And the, but here's the real problem is, uh, Steve, you started out talking about the tobacco companies. The tobacco companies moved into processed foods in the mid-1980s. They already had some experience because they bought Hawaiian Punch in like 1963. And they started gaining knowledge about how to transfer the tobacco addiction model to sugar for children. And it, they did a, a diabolically good job. Mm. They took the Marlboro Country Store and they transformed it into the punchy warehouse. And so that same process of creating the addiction by rewarding purchase points and then surrounding the person with triggers, with logos, they, they transferred that lock, stock, and barrel to sugar for children. It's mm. just unimaginable. Mm. The, the big thing that happened was the introduction, introduction of high fructose corn syrup in 1980. That resolved the last barrier 
to the tobacco companies coming into processed foods, they needed a cheap addictive substance. Before that, they would have had to deal with their fellow drug dealers, the sugar cartel, and they were not going to do that. But then high fructose corn syrup came on the market, limitless supply, and they moved right in. They bought Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods in three years. And all you have to do is say, well, why do people who make their money by hiding addictive substances in a seemingly innocent product and then stimulating the heck out of that addicted brain that's tobacco, why would they move into processed foods? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me check on a couple of questions here. And by the way, you know, teachers have discovered this uh, effect for many years with kids bouncing off the walls in their classes because of uh, these new types of foods. But mm-hmm. can you give us the mechanism of action, both in terms of how it creates the their effect, uh, as well as how they become, it causes the addiction? Uh-huh. So this is a, a four-step process. Now, I really have to give credit to the researchers at University of California, San Francisco, That's where the tobacco companies were required to deposit their internal documents. And those researchers are going through them and publishing on this. And I just have to give them so much credit. All of that knowledge about how they took the the Marvel country store, they created the punchy warehouse, and then they they took it to a Kool-Aid. They even called the the warehouse the wacky warehouse. I mean, is that nerve? And we're creating a a mental illness in your children, and we're going to call it the wacky wear. So it's a four-step process. That's how these corporations do it. Step one is to hide addictive substances in a seemingly innocent product. So they said, oh, look, cigarettes, they're rebellious, they're sexy, they're sophisticated. They made that deadly product seemingly innocent. Now you relax. The doctor's recommended. And then they extracted and concentrated nicotine and put it in to make it more addictive. So with the case of processed foods, when the tobacco companies came in, they hired this consultant, Howard Moskowitz, who had a Harvard PhD in experimental psychology of marketing. And he was a data jock. And so he created this method for maximizing the amount of sugar, fat, salt you could get into a processed food before the consumer would notice it. And that's why in that era, like, pasta sauce got as much sugar in it as Oreos. <laughs> Just So that's step that's step one. You hide phenomenal amounts of sugar, fat, salt in seemingly innocent products. This is why somebody in 1970 could have uh, you know, two slices of bread and go on about their day. But by the 1990s, that person would eat those two slices and then the rest of the loaf. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you load up those products with 
sugar, fat, salt, is you're activating actually three different pathways. They don't talk about dairy, but dairy is also a highly addictive substance, especially when concentrated. It has four different casomorphines in it. And these have been isolated. One has been shown to attach to the beta casomorphine receptors in the brain. It's a substance that's designed to put a 100-pound baby calf to sleep. It's a narcotic. It's like, get a grip. Okay, so first you, you, hide, you hide all that in a seemingly innocent product. And then you step two is you incentivize the consumer to use that product innocently enough times that you have now trained the addictive pathways, the reward pathways, the okay. pleasure pathways in the brain to release an, an artificially stimulated amount of craving neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. pleasure neurotransmitters, reward neurotransmitters, the dopamine, serotonin, opioid, and cannabinoid neurotransmitters. Well, those neurotransmitters are powerful enough to travel across the brain and latch onto behavior brain cells, the receptors on behavior brain cells, and control your behavior. Mm -hmm. So the, the frontal lobe is where you act rationally. But when you have these, now they're sensitized, they're reactive, they're pumping out these uh, cravings, which are controlling behavior and certainly controlling thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, your frontal lobe is not getting blood supply anymore. It's not getting enough of what it needs to control your behavior. So these, these two systems are now competing. The addicted hyperactive reward center is competing with the frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. And the frontal lobe being the neocortex, the new brain, the, it just it's very low on the totem pole mm -hmm. of priorities in the brain. So if it has a choice between sending blood to the reward system, which is three and a half million years old, or the stress system, the brain will choose those systems over the frontal lobe. Yeah. So the, um, the food uh, releases um, substances, neurotransmitters that are rewarding, and through the process of conditioning, actually, Yes, yes, that's it. Um, they get rewarded, so they want more of the food that's giving them that reward. Yep. And it's, of course, going to be more inviting than other foods that don't trigger as much of those chemicals yep. as the sugar and junk food do. They exactly. More of those reward mechanisms. And that's why once Howard Moskowitz had pumped up one corporation's foods, every corporation had to do it. They had to compete. Mm -hmm. And you're you're so so this is why you see this is why you only see coupons for processed foods. Limited time sale. Um, you gotta use this, use this up, you know, have it again, have it again. All the different flavors, they're all stimulating that urge to eat a lot of it. And the, they don't have them anymore, but there was a time when, you know, you saw these family packs of snacks. Mm 
mm-hmm. that were like, you know, a bushel full. Right. It, it okay, seems so, like. Go ahead. All right. So then step three is uh, you send in these <clears throat> proof of purchase to the warehouse and then you get logoed items. So children would would collect the Kool-Aid and the Hawaiian Punch proof of purchase and then send it up, send it in for their Kool-Aid wristwatch and their Kool-Aid cassette player and their Kool-Aid shorts and their Kool-Aid hat. So diabolically, and their Kool-Aid doll, the, the cool dude doll. Now these children are surrounded by cues. So you used the key word, Steve, you, association. These are called associative cues. Mm-hmm. And they actually kick up, they actually trigger a greater release of these craving neurotransmitters than is occurring when the person is consuming it. So eventually this this develops into a compulsion and the person is having a very hard time thinking about anything else. Mm-hmm. We discovered this in our community and we started I just, just like, you know, we should tell our members all the skills that we're teaching them. It got up to 130. And I'm like looking at this and like, why do we have to teach all these skills? Well, because I was addicted as a child. I was thinking about food. And I was in an unstable household. I didn't learn life skills. I didn't learn emotion management. I didn't learn relationship management. I didn't learn thought management. I didn't learn all these things. I didn't learn financial management. I didn't learn anything. I just learned that the way to handle things is to fight over it and be quite dramatic. So this is one of the tragedies that nobody is, I think, well, I think people do know about it, but they don't know why. Every cell in my brain developed in an addicted brain. And this, this is why, by far, just by, my, by multiples, this is the worst, most severe, most resistant addiction ever that's existed on the planet. It starts in utero, and it it's just it never lets up. It's a lot of different substances. You've got all four pathways involved, and um, the food industry just has their way with the the triggering. It's a blanket of cueing, stimulation, reminders, messaging, and that a message has the ability to actually change the structure of the brain you know you have two neurons who are talking to this this way they're connecting this way and then they get a different message well they're now connecting that way and so it's a combination of the chemicals and this just blanket availability availability is one of the strongest triggers you're you're just leaking dopamine whether you want to or not if you know that something's in in the kitchen it's diabolical well, I just wanted to underscore one thing you said before uh, was, uh, I think, I, and this is one of the reasons Steve and I are working together to bring these two ideas together. But from my background, my instinct is uh, processed food addiction. Well, it's going to drive diabetes and heart disease and Alzheimer's disease. And But it's, it's interesting that you were, in your background, your history, the the 
the thing that it manifested first at was emotional problems and mental problems and thinking that it makes it changes our minds and uh so it's not just it's not just going to kill us with a heart attack but it's actually going to ruin our emotional lives as exactly. well it's a great point it is uh, people are the, the the great tragedy is that people are being deprived of the incredible joy, the incredible pleasure, just the thrill of knowing themselves. Mm-hmm. We're it's spectacular. People are just so they're fun and they're interesting and they're funny and they're curious and they're engaging and they're terrific. And when you're eating processed foods. You have brain fog. Your brain is literally inflamed. You have brain fog. All you can think about is food. You you don't know yourself. You know, the advertisers are at you. Oh, you need this. You're this kind of person. You should eat it. And then the programming. So the, the way the brain tries to compensate for this flood, one researcher called it a flood of these craving neurotransmitters, the, the feel-good neurotransmitters, the brain will try to bring you back down to earth because that euphoric state is dangerous. You know, saber-toothed tiger comes at you when you're in that state, you're going to miss it. So the brain compensates, and this was discovered in a, in a lab in University of Boston, Pedro Cotton, that the brain will, it's, the, it's called the corticotropin releasing factor pathway, CRF pathway. But what it does, it sends a signal to the adrenal glands, release adrenaline. We need to get our human back, uh, you know, focused. So the addiction is triggering the stress pathways. And here's the sad thing. It works in reverse. If you're like really stressed out, your brain will try to make you feel better by releasing some of these pleasure transmitters. So stress activates the addiction. Mm-hmm. And one researcher looked at this so beautifully and this constant release of stress and uh, addiction. And um, he, he created a new phrase. It's called thought fusion. You can't think about eating without being stressed out about it. And you can't uh, endure any kind of stress without cravings. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, you know, the, the research is out now that this, this it only takes like a rat six weeks to be really badly addicted to processed foods. So that's just about a year in, in a human life. And we're now eating 73% of our food. Americans eat 73% of their food in processed foods. And I know it looks like 67, but because I've gone in and I've looked, oh, you know, you got to move that flour up to the processed food category. We are all suffering from this. So what would you say is the percentage of people in our society who have a processed food addiction? Yeah. So I I don't say because it's so shocking. What I do is I point to the evidence. And I use the 11 diagnostic criteria out of the... uh, you know, I just want to hold this up because I don't want people to think I'm making this up. 
in the textbook, I wrote a full chapter on the evidence that the addiction, the drug addiction, the alcoholism and diagnostic criteria are rampant in overeaters. So that's what I stand on. And there are 11 signs. And if you're experiencing six or more, you're considered to have a severe addiction, which is consistent with everything else we've talked about. 73% of our food is being eaten. We've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, Children are attacked and they're developing brains. You would expect at this point to see severe addiction rampant. And all you have to do, you look at six um, data points. One of the criteria is unintended use. 83% of Americans are overweight or obese or severely obese now. They did not intend to get that way. Um, Cravings are rampant. Failure to cut back. We know that even bariatric surgery, the, the weight loss that you might get from bariatric surgery wears off. It might be 10 years later, but you're regaining that weight. Most people start regaining lost weight within three years. So that's three criteria right there. And then you go down to um, criteria number nine, which is use in spite of knowledge of consequences. 88% and just put on your seatbelts, guys, because this is shocking. 88% of Americans have a test result that is too high. They either have high triglycerides, high cholesterol, high glucose, or high blood pressure, or they have a high waist-to-hip ratio, 88%. So 88% of people are eating processed foods knowing that they have an out-of-line test result. So that's four. And then uh, withdrawal syndrome, people who are eating uh, processed foods for reasons other than hunger. And um, I have some good evidence for that, but not the sharp numbers that we see elsewhere. And then tolerance. Now, this is scary, so I'm sorry. Tolerance, what is that? Tolerance means you're using more of the substance over time because the feel-good pathways are wearing out and you're trying to stimulate them and you start to get depression and you've got all this anxiety from the uh, elevated adrenaline levels. And um, now, you know, you've heard me say it's 73%, but it used to be 67%. And before that it was 63% or whatever. I'm, I'm not getting the numbers exactly right. But this is across the entire population. You're seeing the percentage of processed foods being consumed increasing. There you go. You've got six criteria. So most people, this was the shocking thing. There were two shocking things that I learned from writing the textbook. Do you guys mind if I hold up the textbook? No, No. please do. This is my Bible. No. Um, is that it's a severe addiction. And the other thing I learned is that we are deeply traumatized by having such a severe medical condition that does, you know, have its own emotional profile. 
and nobody can see it and nobody can treat it. Mm-hmm. And the people around us are addicted. So they have these unstable emotional profiles and um, we're pretty severely traumatized about it. Well, given that, as you say, 80% of people have this condition and it medically drives chronic diseases, it shortens our lives, and it affects our mental health, gives us depression, anxiety, anger, uh, how we relate to other people. Why? What is the source of the pushback? Why Why aren't there protests every day about this? We're, what what is keeping people from being more aware of this or taking action against it? I mean, eventually, people did something about the tobacco industry, and now they they've switched over and morphed into the processed food industry. Do you? Why isn't that changing? And do you foresee there's going to be a tobacco effect on the processed food industry, or have they learned from their mistake and it'll never they'll never be caught? So all of the above, um, they did learn from their mistakes. And so the first thing they did, I mean, one of the things they did when they got into processed foods is they, of course, you know, they captured the media outlets. So the last time I looked at spending on processed foods was advertising. It was like $10 billion a year. You are not going to bite the hand that feeds you. Now, and the other side of that coin is that if you look at the most profitable, best-selling drugs, pharmaceuticals, they're treating the effects of the processed foods. So you would be you would be going up against two, probably. I don't know if I know that processed, but food is more than a trillion dollar industry. You're going up against probably the two most powerful industries on the in the country, in the US. And I'll give you an example of how this works because my undergraduate degree is in economics and political science and I have this Stanford MBA, which I wondered why I had that for a long time and still I got until I got into the business practices. But you know, it's not a common I commonly accepted that a business degree is a prerequisite for understanding health issues, but uh, it's a pretty fair argument there that's helpful. Okay, so you just, um, uh, here's the example that illustrates the situation. There's Nora Vokoff. She's the executive director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. She's been there for decades. And decades ago, in the late 1990s, when we first had brain imaging technology, She was all over it. And she was the first person to publish on a finding that the brains of overeaters are doing the same things as the brains of drug addicted people. She published on that first. That was a huge breakthrough. And it's another piece of just like, you you know, this is like an accident happening. You want to look away, but you can't look away. When you see those brain scans where the the dopamine fields of obese people are downregulated even more than the cocaine addicted people, then you you can't you can't try to argue that this is not happening. It, you can't argue that processed food addiction doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but plenty of people do. They'll say, "Oh, it's the fat tissue." 
No. <laughs> nope. All right. So, um, do you remember Senator Flake from Arizona? Yeah. He kept a book. He called it the Waste Book. And in it were lists of things that the government was doing that were a waste. And on that list was food addiction research. So there's Nora. She's burning up the track. She's going to create this body of evidence. And then she just kind of stops publishing on food addiction. She's very smart. And she just read the, you know, read the winds. It was like, mm, maybe we won't pursue this. Mm. That's the influence of the food industry, of course, right there. Right. You, you know, I'll give you another ugh, super, just stunning example of how this works. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine just came out with a consensus report. It went through this whole process of uh, gathering experts and putting statements, gathering experts, doing the research, and putting statements in front of them and asking them if they agree. So they agreed that the goal of diabetes treatment should be remission. You guys know the goal of diabetes treatment right now is slow the progress, minimize complications, delay death as long as possible, which is all. You, I don't need to tell you. That is just nonsense. It's, it's, if you address the addiction, I mean, we see diabetes going into remission in our community all the time. Okay, so you would think that that would be a headline in every newspaper. It's not a cure, but it's the closest thing to a cure for diabetes that we're ever going to see. And then they, they got consensus on another statement. You can put diabetes into remission by changing diet alone. You, diet, uh, lifestyle changes are more effective or as effective as bariatric surgery with no complications. That was another statement. And what really, of course, filled my heart is they're saying that the reason why lifestyle interventions don't work is because they're not intense enough. Mm -hmm. What you would say, you would think... Oh my gosh, 10% of Americans have diabetes, maybe 20% are undiagnosed. This is leading to blindness. This is leading to kidney failure and dialysis and early death. This is leading to amputations. You would think every media outlet everywhere in the world would be blaring, doing interviews on these consensus statements. Mm -hmm. Zip. Nada. Did you see anything? No. Nope. So, I think this is a good time to turn to how you approach this problem, what your program has to offer, how it lays this out. Thank you. Yes. So I will tell you, when I started working on the, the textbook in 2014, I had not been in the research. I finished my doctoral program in 07. I really hadn't been deeply into the research in a couple of years. So I just started, you know, collecting, collecting, collecting. What I immediately saw is a lot of new research on cueing as the cause of overeating. Cueing, triggering cravings, 
which triggered overeating, which caused obesity. I There was so much new research, I had to actually stop for a couple of months and for my own edification, just write an entire paper. And it's now morphed into the cravings chapter in the in the book, in the textbook. So I knew even at that time, so we're talking 2014, that queuing had to be addressed and had to be blocked out. So why do drug-addicted people go to residential treatment? It's protection from queuing. It's because queuing activates those highly sensitive. When I say reactive, it means that those cells will release a lot of neurotransmitter in response to a very small stimulation. So that's what that means, sensitive, highly reactive. And that's what the food industry is going for. They want to make those cells really, really reactive. They want to just blast that reactivity. Okay, so as soon as I got halfway through the textbook and I saw it was a severe addiction, I knew that we, I, I knew why, I mean, I tried 22 things at that point, programs. I, I had been, no, I tried 14 things over 22 years to try to get people to stop. But when I saw that it was a severe addiction, I thought, oh, well, that's why nothing I've done has worked. That's why nothing anybody does works. It's because you need an immersion program. You need much more. If you have a severe addiction, if you meet six or more criteria, you get sent to residential treatment. And I'm like, hmm. We're not sending 100 million people or several hundred million or 300 million people to residential treatment. That will not be happening. But what I did immediately is I started a daily phone call. At that point, we had the technology. I could uh, recruit people to a daily phone call. I said, well, AA, 90 meetings in 90 days. Let's see if that works. Not. Did not work. These poor people, they hung in there with me for like a couple of years, uh, but they weren't getting any better. They'd come to that daily phone call, but they weren't getting any better. And then they turned in the manuscript the middle of 2017. And at the end of 17, I met Zoom. And my first thought was, oh, we could deliver an intensive outpatient program over Zoom. Let's try it. So I recruited my telephone people, and we on January 1st, 2018, we had our first day long. So I didn't know that you can't stay on Zoom all day long. I just said, okay, let's get on Zoom all day. And we did things together, like people puttered around their living rooms, and they arranged their furniture, and they did their vacuuming, but we stuck together all day long. At the beginning of the day, I had a lot of nervousness. Uh, people like, I don't think I can do this because I haven't been able to do this for 30 years. And I don't think I can do this because when I start dieting, I start binging. I don't think I can do this because I don't like weighing and measuring and it makes me upset. And it's just, well, then don't, don't, don't start, you know, because I knew about the stress issue. Like, just have a fun day. That night. It's going to make me cry. I went around the room, maybe 10, they're all women, 
who had been trying to get one clean day for decades. And they had all eaten clean that day. Oh, man, I ran for the research. What the heck happened? And, and, and it carried on through the whole week. They got through withdrawal. They, it's a you know, it's four-day acute uh, stage of withdrawal. They all got through that. They were all coming out of the fog and all that stuff by the end of the week. And then we had a paid group the next week. They all stayed and volunteered for that group. Same thing. So uh, in my research since that time, I have come to deeply appreciate that there is a dominant system in the brain, which people don't tend to talk about, and it is the urge to belong. Mm -hmm. It's the urge to imitate as a method for being accepted into a group. I mean, this makes perfect sense if you think about evolution. If you were in a tribe, you lived. How did you get into that tribe? You mimicked their behavior. You imitated their behavior. They were going to look for food. You went to look. They were doing this. You did that with them. They were looking for shelter. You looked for shelter. Fighting off a predator, you fought off a predator. That's how you got food, water, shelter, protection, and your kids got raised to the point where they could reproduce. It's the dominant system in the brain. And this is why you have the success of 12-step groups in conquering addiction, because the urge to belong is more powerful in the human brain than the addiction. Wow, I think this is a, a perfect point for maybe you can tell people how they can learn more about your program, how they can follow you on social media, and, and also... Uh, we may, we may be including a discount as well that'll be down in the show notes. Yeah. So we are the Addiction Reset Community, and soon we will be also the Remission Optimistic Community. If you have a diagnosis that you have been told is not curable, please send me an email at info at processedfoodaddiction.com. You can go to Processed Food Addiction and take the self-quiz. You, uh, Yeah, so that's your first step. Go to ProcessedFoodAddiction.com and take the self-quiz, the 11 signs of addiction. And you'll, you'll give us your email and we will invite you to a free workshop to explain how everything works. The other thing that we offer is a training. If you're a coach or you're a professional or you're an individual and you want to incorporate food addiction recovery into your practice. Um, we have what we call the ARC manager training. It can lead to a job with us, but it's also, I think it's a, it's essential training if you're a medical professional. So thanks to these wonderful gentlemen. It's a, it's not an expensive training, but we are offering a 10% off. You must tell us that you are a listener of this podcast, and we will give you that 10% off. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this very informative and really one of the most important subjects that we could be talking about thank because you. of how prevalent it is. So mm -hmm. we appreciate 
all of your information. We appreciate your program and that you are there to help people and yeah. give them very valuable information. So thank you so much, Joan. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you deeply. I will see you around the hood. Yeah. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a phys physician, patient, or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously, so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next time.